0: Are you looking for a podcast today?
1: Welcome to Dirty Bird. Today I have a very special episode where I'm interviewing Jessica Anderson, the Rehabilitation Program Manager at Blue Ridge Wildlife Center in Boyce, Virginia. Jessica, welcome to Dirty Bird.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: And um, Jessica, do you just mind uh, telling everyone like a little bit about yourself and about the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center?
2: Um, Sure. So I am the rehabilitation program manager at the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center, and we are a full service, nonprofit, wildlife dedicated hospital. Um, So we take in all native Virginia wildlife. And generally we see uh, nearly this year, at least we've we've been seeing nearly 3000 animals um, so far. We're not even at the end of the year yet, which is crazy. Um, But we do all kinds of things. We do birds, we do mammals, reptiles, um, you know, anything from bald eagles all the way down to uh, white footed mice and things like that. So um, we try to focus on the native animals uh, in terms of, you know, animals that are injured, ill, orphaned, um, you know, a cat attacked animal or a bird that's hit your window, you know, that's going to be something that we can take care of versus taking it to your, your pet you know, vet or anything like that, that may not have the expertise or really understand what they're doing with wildlife when it comes to rehabilitating them.
1: Wow, that is so awesome. And uh, I first found Blue Ridge Wildlife Center on Instagram and uh, uh, on the Dirty Bird Instagram on please follow and please follow the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center because you guys post some amazing stuff. You guys are doing some amazing work over there. So I'm so happy to uh, be talking with you today.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, we definitely try to post at least once a day, whether it's about a case that we have coming in, or you know, just something interesting about wildlife in our area. Um, and a lot of the things that we talk about aren't just specific to Virginia; they can be kind of seen nationwide and and applied that way, especially when it's uh, baby season, our busiest time of year um, between spring and summer. So it's always good to check that out and you might learn something so
1: oh i I definitely learn a lot every day from you guys and uh, i know i'm definitely gonna learn a lot from uh from you today here on this podcast too um do you mind telling us a little bit like about your career life um about you know you your kind of uh work in rehab facilities
2: uh sure so i started out as most people do as an unpaid intern which is a whole thing in and of (laughs) itself um but i started my career essentially straight out of college i had no idea what i wanted to do all i knew is that i wanted to work with animals and i didn't necessarily want to be a vet that was like too high maintenance and too much pressure and i couldn't imagine doing surgeries and being responsible for that but i was like anything else i'm down with Uh, and i didn't even know that rehabilitation was a field until i just started googling you know hands-on wildlife internships and careers and jobs and a lot of the things that came up were wildlife rehab based or zoo keeping and things like that so i pretty much just kind of threw my applications out wherever and i you know, was looking at across the country in California, um, you know, wherever that I thought I could potentially get uh, an internship and kind of get my foot in the door. And the first place that I got was um, the Marine Mammal Care Center in San Pedro, California. But that might not be necessarily bird related, but bird related in the same parking lot as the Marine Mammal Care Center is the International Bird Rescue Center as well. Yeah. So literally I would go in the mornings after my internship, I stayed on and volunteered with the Marine Mammal Center and the Marine Mammal Care Center. And I would go for my morning volunteer shift there. And then I started volunteering with international bird rescue and I would just go after lunch over to them across the parking lot and help them out with some things. Um, so they were kind of my, those two were my first kind of introduction to rehabilitation and, it was awesome. Um, what do they I've, do
1: at, at, at an international bird rescue center? Is that all like management? Or are they actually taking in birds from all over the world?
2: No, so that's, it's a, it's a rehabilitation facility and it's a really amazing facility. Like they have in such a small space, they have so many uh, enclosures that You can use for different types of birds. I remember they had this one huge long enclosure, and they had brown pelicans and different kinds of gulls that were in there. And they're primarily uh, geared towards sea and pelagic birds. Um, So they do occasionally, you know, take and maybe triage um, other birds like raptors and stuff like that. But they will generally transfer those guys up to the California Wildlife Center in Malibu. But for the most part, I was only there for about a month, so I really uh-huh. didn't get too into, you know, handling or anything like that. I did help like just kind of restrain birds uh, for treatments, but they really focus on, you know, oiled birds, um, mm-hmm. just the rehabilitation of, uh, you know, seabirds and things like that. Um, I remember they have these awesome above ground pools that allow for like grebes and loons to have diving space, but also little dry dock areas. It was awesome. That is so um, cool. Yeah, now you and
1: said you said you were involved in you know restraining them for for whatever medical mm-hmm. procedures or anything. How did you ever like? restrain something like a brown pelican cuz i imagine a bird of that size is just so strong
2: i i have never restrained a brown pelican before the f- uh, the things that i remember i remember restraining uh cormorants i remember restraining a canada goose um, and a couple of smaller birds like grebes Um, and most of them are very
1: scary. Oh
2: my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I, I always joke that like the worst injuries that I've gotten through rehab have all been from Canada geese and everybody (laughs) expects it to be like, Oh, like hawks and eagles or like cormorants and things like that. And I'm like, no, it's the geese. It's always, (laughs)
1: um,
2: but yeah, they, they had a wide variety of birds and if you follow them on, on any of their social media, you know, they're constantly, uh, you know, posting interesting birds, you know, they get different types of eiders. Uh, I'm pretty sure they had uh, a booby recently and they just get things from, from kind of all over the place that sometimes you might not expect, but obviously with the changing environment and things like that, you know, birds are changing their migratory routes and different birds are showing up in different places, but they also dispatch like an oiled bird response too. So if there's an oiling, you know, an oil spill somewhere, they're kind of, one of the the first um, organizations to kind of get boots on the ground. It's them, um, Tri-State Bird Rescue, which is in Delaware. Uh, and then there's just this oiled wildlife network um, that comes together to basically get rehabbers, veterinarians, and organizations just kind of set up with facilities strictly just to take care and de-oil birds um, during these situations. So it's really amazing. They, they do a lot of great work.
1: That's really um, cool. So do they load up on the Dawn dish detergent and head to those (laughs) oil sites?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, and we kind of, we have the same at my facility now at at Blue Ridge, you know, almost every soap that we use is Dawn. And I think it's just because a lot of people see Dawn as this wildlife, um, thing and they just decide, you know, if I'm going to donate something, I'll just buy them a a thing of Dawn. And we have been stocked on Dawn for quite a while. (laughs) Um, but yeah, they, they do a lot of work with that. Um, and honestly, it's just incredible because they're, they are international. So around the world for global oil um, issues and stuff like that, they'll send teams out, um, you know, within 24 hours of it happening to get them out there to get those birds situated and, and taken care of and hopefully released back out once the oil is, uh, cleaned up.
1: That's amazing. And so what, um, brought you to uh, Blue Ridge wildlife center and what kind of work have you been doing there?
2: Um, so I came to Blue Ridge by way of my second apprenticeship, um, that I spent a year in Texas. So I did a year long apprenticeship there. And that was, again, with all kinds of Texas wildlife, which if you've never been to Texas, Texas is awesome in terms of wildlife. There's just so many different things there. Um, and I got a lot of experience dealing with a lot of different species. Um, You know my favorite one probably down there was the crested caracara amazing they're awesome (laughs) um but i was in texas and i'm originally from maryland so once again i've kind of been you know going back and forth i went to college in virginia i then moved to california for this internship i then moved to texas for this year-long apprenticeship and so the whole year that i'm there i'm kind of looking around for other jobs and basically throwing um, applications and stuff like that and if anybody has ever tried to get involved in the animal care field i'm sure they can relate there are way more people than there are actual paying jobs which is just it's really depressing but at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, I get it a lot of animal care positions are from like nonprofits so there's not a lot of money that goes into it. Um so I was just kind of throwing uh applications out and the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center was hiring for a an a rehabilitation assistant. And I was like, sure, why not? I'll throw it out there. I was doing some research and their education coordinator who's actually still with us, Jennifer Berghofer, she had actually worked at the same place in Texas three years earlier where I was currently at. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. Like she knows exactly what I've been through. She knows exactly you know, what kind of training I've had. So I sent them an email. And there must have been some like wires crossed in the email, because the way that I said it, I said, oh, you know, here's my application, here's my resume and cover letter and blah, blah, blah. And also just wanted to let you know your education coordinator, Jennifer, worked at the place that I'm at now. And the executive or the, the founder at the time who was doing the job search talked to Jennifer and was like, oh, hey. This girl you worked with, which was not true. She was like, this girl you worked with, Jessica, is (laughs) emailing us about this job. And Jennifer was like, I don't know. I don't know anyone like I don't know a girl named Jessica that I worked with in Texas so that was really awkward but we did a phone interview since obviously I was uh halfway across the country um and it was just it was very casual very relaxed her and I and um our previous rehab manager Heather um, we all just got along really well on the phone I actually forgot that I was like in an interview because we were just talking about things and like going over everything um and pretty much uh, a day or two later, they were like, yep, we're good. You're hired. Come on up. And my just, my family was very excited that I was coming back to the East Coast as well. So that yeah. kind of helped along the way. Um, <laughs> the prodigal that, daughter
1: returns.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my And I started, oh my gosh, was that January 2015. So I've been with Blue Ridge now for about five years. So I went from the rehab uh, assistant. So, you know, kind of taking the skills that I had learned in Texas and coming into Virginia um, and going slowly from just assisting with rehab um, and kind of overseeing that to also now I organize, you know, and coordinate volunteers and interns in our internship program. I help with education programs and training um, some of our non-releaseable ambassadors that we have, um, as well as overseeing much of the rehabilitation um, side of things. So it's it's definitely been a journey. <laughs> to well, that's awesome.
1: Myself. Yeah, that's so great that you can do something you love and also be working with people that, I mean, it sounds like you all have a great relationship. So that's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, uh, just curious, cause I'm from Yorktown, Virginia, um, uh, mm-hmm. right on the bay there. Um, where, where in Maryland are you from?
2: Um, I'm originally from, uh, if you want to be like broad, I'm just South of Baltimore, but to be more specific Catonsville area. Yeah, I know where
1: Catonsville so. is. Oh,
2: yeah. okay. I, yeah. So. I went,
1: uh, for a summer I, um, worked and stayed at, uh, UMBC
2: Oh, um, so oh I my God! Kinda, Do you know where the um, the science that like random science building that's the, the away research center? Or, Is it uh, the one off of Gun Road, like I right
1: so. yeah, near yeah, the to, State Park? Yes, yes, yes.
2: Yeah, I lived there. I lived at the very end of that road, and I grew up. Right next to the Patapsco State Park in the woods, it was amazing. Like,
1: I love the yeah. I used to go on trail runs at uh, the Patapsco State Park all the time. I think I got lost out there a couple times.
2: That's crazy, huh? <laughs> it is a small world.
1: <laughs> that is so cool. Um, <laughs> and I'm just gonna throw out a guess for what college you went to. You seem like a jam. You Duke? Am I correct?
2: <laughs> that's so funny. I went to uh, like one of the smallest colleges in Virginia. So. I went to Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia. Okay. Um, It was previously uh, an all-women's college and then went co-ed, I think, in 2009? Yeah. 2007. Um, But, yeah, very small. Like, my graduating high school class was larger. uh, Well, my graduating high school class was almost as large as my entire college, um, you know, (laughs) everyone there. So it was wild. But that's actually kind of... My college, uh, my college ornithology professor is sort of who got me really interested in birds because he was just, he went to Cornell, you know, he was always super enthusiastic about birds. We did, we would go out on hikes and go birding and look for different behaviors and it was really cool and it's really kind of thanks to him, Dr. Shedd, amazing. that I was really interested in learning more about birds specifically, but just in in general, uh, you know, helping wildlife and stuff like that.
1: That's so great you brought that up because that was going to be one of my questions too. What um, I mean, I know you're interested in animals just in general, not just birds. Mm-hmm. But um, I was going to ask kind of what interested you in uh, volunteering at that International Bird Rescue Center and kind of interested you in birds because I feel like you know, growing up, uh, you know, as a teenager and everything, and uh, in college and stuff, I always thought burning was just for like old people or something (laughs) yeah nerds or something Mm -hmm. and then i mean i guess i'm a nerd but um uh, (laughs) and what got me into it was just kind of was the behavior aspect was realizing that looking at these small little dinosaurs basically that have Mm -hmm. all these interesting personalities and behaviors that are just on display for us on a daily basis um yeah and and also that kind of is what made me make this podcast too is to try to um, to, you know, show people that birding can be like really fun. It's not a stuffy, it's not just stuffy old ornithologist, you know? Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's kind of been, you know, I, I actually have uh, a t-shirt that says like, it's okay. Birding is for smart people anyway. Like that was gifted to me. Oh my gosh. It's, it's funny. But, um, it,
1: my, my fiance has a shirt that says beer and birds. So. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like once you start telling people that you're into birds, that's like the only things that you start getting is just like bird centric stuff and i'm okay with it i'm like yeah, yeah we're just <laughs> furnish my house just crazy bird lady that's fine
1: <laughs> so much cardinal stuff like.
2: oh my gosh <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm like come on where's some love for some of the you know like the cedar wax wings and stuff like
2: oh, that oh <laughs> the cedar wax wings the zoro birds they're the best
1: you guys had one uh recently is that we, right
2: yeah we actually have two in care currently and they're just like they're one of my favorite songbirds to, mm-hmm. to deal with just because they have so much personality. I mean, that's the same with like chickadees and stuff like that, but like, You can just the fact that they're just they're bold and they're social and you just pop a plate of berries in front of them and they don't care that you're just standing there watching them or you're like working around in the rest of the room. They're just like yep berries priority and they'll just sit there and just like gorge themselves on berries and like especially when we get um, babies in you'll see them pass the berries to each other and oh. like the older ones will feed the younger ones even though they're not related or you know they're they're separated by a week or two in age like it's so cool watching them and just in general like watching birds do their thing is is amazing so
1: oh for sure oh. um have you ever heard the stories um of cedar well uh, like big group of cedar waxwings? because they love traveling in those big groups and mm-hmm. um they'll uh, come across some Uh, Berries that have been, uh, you know, sitting in the sun for a little too long and have fermented. And uh, there's stories where they eat all the fermented berries and get uh, drunk and they're like flying around all crooked. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Although I've never, so I've heard like the bohemian waxwings and because I follow a lot of the rehab centers like up in Canada. So Mm -hmm. I see them talk about it. I don't think we've ever gotten any, you know, quote unquote, drunk cedar waxwings before, but um, that would be really interesting, especially because, uh, you know, I wonder how often they end up hitting windows because of that yeah. or getting caught by cats, um, or just other predators. Like it's so weird. You would think that they would kind of catch on as it was going, but I guess there's that, that latency period where they don't realize they're getting drunk until they're already there, but yeah, uh, birds can uh, have fun too. So.
1: Yeah, they can. <laughs> uh, and, uh, speaking of just Fun birds. What are some? I mean, good success stories, or just some birds with a personality that uh, you've taken care of, or stuff like that.
2: Um, so there are a couple stories. So if we want to talk about like success stories, um, one a uh, one recent one that we had was we got called in by the Department of Wildlife Resources, which is Virginia's um, wildlife regulating agency. Mm-hmm. So they're in charge of you know, the game wardens or the conservation police officers and kind of regulating uh, wildlife laws and things like that. And we got a call from one of their biologists one morning and he was asking for information and guidance in terms of how to go about catching a great horned owl um and i was like oh okay you know talking him through it a little bit and then he kind of disclosed and was like oh well it's it's a woman has this great horned owl she's had it for you know an undisclosed amount of time she shouldn't have this great horned owl." Uh, and i was just going to go in and you know kind of assess it from there and i was like well do you do you have gloves do you have a net like do you know what you're looking for do you know if the bird's injured and he was like Oh no, I don't. I don't have any of those things. He was like, "Can you guys come out and help us?" And I was like, "Absolutely." Um, rescues are kind of my favorite thing as well. Like, I love going out and and getting the animals to bring them back. It's kind of uh, yeah. one of the the thrills of the job, so to speak. <laughs> um, so we ended up going out and uh, checking out this area, and we were with the biologist, but also two police officers to kind of go figure this situation out. So apparently. This woman had been like charged with hoarding before. And, you know, they said that they were there previously six months earlier and the great horned owl wasn't there. And now she had a great horned owl. So obviously she had had him somewhere between that six month mark. And Mm -hmm. so we get there and there's basically this metal dog run so it's chain link fence and in the middle of this dog run is just a a smaller wire dog kennel essentially and perched on top of this kennel is this great horned owl and right in front of him is this just whole cooked turkey carcass (laughs) like like she had just thrown a turkey in with this great Uh. horned owl meanwhile and i'm just like looking at this like oh my god what is she like? Is this all she's been feeding him? Because that turkey is like four times the weight of this great horned owl. Yeah. Like he's been eating real good. Um, <laughs> but it actually ended up being an issue. We went in, we grabbed him. He couldn't fly, and we were wow. like, "Oh, maybe there's a wing injury. Maybe something else is going on." And that's kind of always an issue because if if someone's had a bird that had an in, a broken bone or you know an, yeah. an injured a wing or something like that. Um yeah. Birds heal. It might be too late to, yes. to
1: fix it at that point.
2: Yeah, yeah. exactly. So birds heal super fast. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they start callousing uh, a broken bone or a fracture within, you know, 48 hours or so. And we can't reset that. We can't re-break a bone because it shortens the bone, they lose range of motion, and then they can't fly and we can't release them. So it's really important for birds if they do have an injury to come in right away. So that was my biggest concern was, oh no, this bird can't fly. He must have had an injury and who knows how long this woman's had him. So we get him back to the center, we pull him out, and that like we felt him up and we didn't feel any injuries, but he definitely had, he had foot sores, um, like lesions on his feet. Um, and there, there weren't any other perching items in this dog cat, like dog run that she had him. in. he was just perched on this like metal dog kennel that was in the middle of this enclosure. And we felt him up. So we get a body condition on all of our birds when they first come in and it, Basically, on a scale of one to five, is how we rate it. Three being reasonable, one being emaciated, and five being obese. And this Great Hordell was he a was solid a five. <laughs> oh yeah, he was, he was like burst, like like something out of uh, like a factory farm. Like somebody <laughs> had just been force feeding this Great Hordell. I mean, obviously, she was just feeding him straight, just whole turkeys, and he oh, was still. But because of that, because of this, this, uh, you know, being obese and having all of this extra weight and not having proper perching, all of that weight was pressing down on his feet and causing foot sores. And he had like shaved down talons, which were really weird, but might yeah. have been from... From having inappropriate perching and stuff like that. Um, So we ended up just putting him on a diet. So he was (laughs) not happy about it. Um, You know, he only got 200 or 150 grams or so, 120 grams of rat every day. And then we, Once he kind of got down to a, a more reasonable weight, we moved him outside, and he could fly. He was flying great. He,
1: After he did his owl Weight Watchers. Oh my
2: gosh! Yeah, it's like <laughs> beach body, but but for owls. Um.
1: <laughs> oh man, he needs to be on a commercial. <laughs> I look like this.
2: Yeah. Right before now, man. look who's
1: hooting at me
2: if you could see the x-rays of this owl like just like his legs and and chest are just so meaty it's outrageous to look at compared to like we compared him to other great horned owls that we had x-rays of and it's just comical but also really sad obviously because we don't know how long this owl was was like this and how long it had these issues um but thankfully he made a great recovery he was released we released him after about three weeks, four weeks after we brought him in. Um, The biggest issue was that we weren't sure where the woman found him and she wouldn't Mm -hmm. disclose that information. So we did have to get permission from the department of wildlife resources to release him in our County. And they said, yeah, that's fine. So we ended up doing a, a public release with that. And he, flew right off he was flying great um and that's kind of
1: and all of a sudden thanksgiving turkeys went missing
2: (laughs) (laughs) right oh (laughs) gosh i wouldn't put it past him honestly especially (laughs) right now so
1: that that's an amazing story thank you for telling it um now i don't know if you guys avoid this but did you ever give him a nickname or anything like that
2: um so no but we have given nicknames before and that's kind of how we ended up with our screech owl being named um, one of our non-releasable screech owls uh his name is dopey and Uh while it's not it's not nice um but we just (laughs) can't get away from it and if you met him you'd be like okay yes this is exactly appropriate for him
1: is this an eastern screech owl
2: yes yes Yes, they
1: they do look a little (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little dopey. That's
2: <laughs> yeah. So he he had he came in as a, a baby um, back in 2013, um, and he came in. He was found as a baby. We couldn't find a nest to re nest him, so we said yes, bring him in. We'll rehabilitate him. And we had six other screech owls at the time. We he was just this little fluffy downy thing, and we had others that are about his age, so we put him in with them they were eating fine, you know, hand feeding, picking up pieces. And once they started fledging, we moved them outside into a larger enclosure and that's kind of where his nickname started because people, we don't give names to any of our patients. They're all numbered. So by, so he would have been like 13 dash whatever number patient of the year that he had come in. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of names, sometimes we give them qualifiers. So people would go out and come back in and be like, Oh, you know, that dopey screech owl out there, you know, he's just (laughs) looking really weird. And we'd be like, Oh, okay. And we'd start, you know, asking the volunteers and being like, Oh, how's that, you know, kind of dopey screech owl, like, how's he doing? (laughs) And it ended up being that, you know, we would go out to feed them and every other normal appropriate behaving screech owl would be up in the 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 branches you know hiding from us screeching at us obviously telling us that they did not want to be around us yeah. and dopey would be sitting on the ground uh, of our enclosure eating rocks and would let you walk right up to him, and clearly, you know, part of a well-balanced Al's diet. Um, oh, he reminds me of that
1: chicken in Moana.
2: That's what everyone says, and I still haven't seen that movie, so oh. I feel like I'm just doing him a disservice from not from not seeing it, but. If he, it made him, you know, honestly, we were like, okay, well, you're clearly not going to do well. Like he didn't really react to us. He doesn't try to fly ever. He just likes to putt, putt, putt around on the ground.
1: Oh.
2: Um, so he didn't come in with any injuries that we could tell, but our suspicion is that, you know, there's probably something genetically wrong with him yeah. and his mom or the his older siblings kicked him out. Um, And that's probably, you know, they can tell things that we can't. So physically there's nothing wrong with him. You know, if you look at his eyes, his eyes work perfectly. He had no injuries, but he has developed. um, He does have seizures every now and again. So we do think that it's something that either, you know, was a genetic thing that's just kind of, getting you know worse as it goes on but so far it it doesn't seem to affect his behavior other than that they only last about 10 seconds or so um and otherwise he's his perfect dopey self you know i can take him to programs with like a a live concert on the lawn and he'll fall asleep Uh, he has no idea you know kind of what realm he's in really i always (laughs) he's just his own world yeah, I tell people he's kind of like Hodor from Game of Thrones, yeah. <laughs> and I I think he's just saying his name over and over again in his mind. He's just dopey doopy. Dopey, dopey. Dopey. Yes, exactly. So that's that's a pretty fair um, uh, <laughs> description of that's of our little awesome. child. So he's fun.
1: So you mentioned these ambassador birds. So are these birds mm-hmm. that you can't release back into the wild? So do they? You and you said you take them to places like. Uh, concerts or schools and stuff like
2: that. So the, the concert was a, there was like a, the concert was on part of the lawn, but it was part of a a larger sort of local education event. And we had a Mm -hmm. little table and we just took Dopey with us, but um, yeah, so we have, I think just under 20, uh, ambassadors that live uh, permanently with us. And so all of the patients with the exception of a few, like we have a diamondback Terrapin that came in and she was a surrendered pet. Um, But everyone else that's with us was previously a wild patient um, that had some sort of debilitation or injury or something along those lines that would not allow them to thrive if we were to release them. And it's also good to kind of mention that not every wild animal that can't be released makes a good ambassador candidate. You know, we definitely make sure that the animals that we're considering keeping are going to be comfortable uh, with whatever injury or debilitation that they have. You know, they're not going to be chronically in pain or anything like that. Um, You know, they're going to be comfortable being around people. You know, do they have a personality that they're going to be easily trained and easily comfortable? You know, once they're trained in large groups and things like that, they're not going to be stressed. They're not going to be, you know, performing destructive behaviors and things like that. Um, so we, we have a couple of birds. We have a peregrine falcon named Goose. She's one of my favorites. Um, she has a, a wing amputation after she encountered a airplane at Dulles Airport, so that's fun. Um, we have a bald eagle named Jefferson who suffered multiple broken wings back in, uh, I think he came in 2014 um, as a first year, uh, and now he's a full-grown, full-fledged white head and white whitetail adult um we also have two red-tailed hawks uh one big female briar who suffered from west nile virus who ended up being partially blind um west nile tends to uh cause a lot of visual issues for hawks and they do need their perfect vision to be released so she couldn't go um and then we have grills our other male red-tailed hawk who was actually hit by a car stuck in the grill of the car um because we're not nice when we come comes to naming our birds uh (laughs) So we had to actually physically go out and remove him from the grill, but he ended up having a uh, permanent um, visual impairment on his right side and an injured wing. So do you ever sing guys... to him?
1: Smile for me, hawk. I want oh, to see
2: your grills. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I've never thought about that. But a lot of people ask us about like, oh, is it bear grills? And we're like, no. He- of a car like that's it's yeah it's insulting um <laughs> but we have those guys and then we have our we have two screech owls a red phase dopey and then a gray phase patches as well so God, we have a couple of, of birds that we take out as well as um, a few mammals and a, a bunch of reptiles as well that we go to programs, we go to schools, well obviously not right now with the yeah. pandemic, um, but we have been doing some virtual uh, education programs, we actually have a whole bunch of like live programs that we recorded that are on our YouTube channel, so oh, cool. anybody's Anybody's interested in, in learning more about some of our ambassadors and just those uh, native wildlife in general you what, what would
1: people search on YouTube to find your channel?
2: Um, they should just be able to search Blue Ridge Wildlife Center and okay. we have our we have our own channel We also have our own link. So if you just put in youtube.com slash Blue Ridge Wildlife CTR like center abbreviated yep. That should get to us as well.
1: Awesome Um Wow. That's, that's so cool. And, um, one of the parts I like best about that is, you know, a bird that can't go into the wild. it still, you know, has, uh, a purpose it can serve, um, education mm-hmm. wise. And it Absolutely. also, it also makes me think too, cause I know in some of my outdoor, um, things I've, uh, maybe come across an animal, especially in roadkill situations uh, mm-hmm. that has been just injured really bad. And you kind of go through the thought, is this even worth trying to, uh, take somewhere or uh, and but um, uh, so you're kind of saying it, it probably is to, to worth taking the animal even if you think it's injured so bad that it's never going to really rehabilitate because uh, there's a chance it might be able to become one of those ambassadors
2: yeah so I mean most of the time like I said I'd say probably ninety percent of the animals that come in that have an injury that they can't be released with. 90% of those animals are not going to make good candidates. They're going to be stressed. They're going to have, um, you know, injuries that are going to chronically impair them and, and cause issues. And there's also legal issues around, you know, what you can technically keep. Like obviously, um, one of those things is we cannot amputate above the elbow on a bird. So if they Mm -hmm. have a humeral fracture um, or, you know, a fracture of the, you know, the upper part of the arm or the wing, that's going to be an issue that if it's not fixable or it's necrotic, you know, we can't amputate up to the shoulder. That's just not going to be appropriate. And legally, we're not allowed to do that. Um, So there are some things uh, that, you know, can be kept. There are some things that can be placed, but for the most part, I generally tell people to at least call around and see if somebody's willing to at least examine the animal, because even if it does, you know, it can't be saved. Um, You know, humane euthanasia is not the worst thing, especially for, you know, a wild animal. Nature's not nice. You know, they they can survive with those injuries, especially Um, you know, vultures and things like that, that are just kind of wandering on the ground and eating roadkill anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. Those guys can live with broken wings for days, if not weeks, and that's painful. You know, it causes further suffering. They can have maggots and all kinds of things. Um, Mm -hmm. So I always tell people just in the best interest of the animal, call someone if they're able to take it. And even if it is just to put it down, um, you know, at least that animal's not sitting there suffering, potentially getting hit by another car, being attacked by predators and things like that so
1: all right good um yeah that's that's good information to know because i i know me, myself personally and, and i know lots of other people i've definitely come across situations like that so um mm-hmm. i, I thank thanks for th- that information yeah um and uh i guess kind of since we're already talking about this do you mind kind of telling some uh, either your weird or your horror stories with um uh birds
2: um so <laughs> yes uh especially, so people always think that like working in rehab or just working with animals in general, um, the most of the time, the reason that people like me or, you know, other people interested in animals try to go into these careers is because we really don't want to work with people. Um, we prefer <laughs> animals to people, but it's funny because looking back, it's like working with animals almost exposes you to some of the weirdest and wildest people that you're gonna encounter because people find animals and they just get these emotional attachments and i understand like you want to save it and Mm -hmm. you want to do everything you can and now this baby bird is your baby but it's just so incredible to watch the sort of um almost like cognitive like dissonance between like if you have to put an animal down, people just cannot comprehend that that might be the best thing for that animal. We've had people just freak out, um, especially because uh, in Virginia, we're not allowed to rehabilitate and release invasive species. Yes. Um, but we also don't discriminate in terms of like if somebody calls us and says, I have a European starling and I can't renest it or it's injured, you know, we're not going to say, Oh, it's a European starling, don't bring it to us. Yeah. We're Yes, if that if there's no way to reunite that animal with its parents and it's suffering, it has an injury, something like that, it needs to be brought in. Half the time, honestly, it's not a European starling. It could be anything else. Yeah. We don't trust we don't trust those IDs. Um, but if it does come in, you know, that's something that Uh, One of our policies is that we're honest with people. And we do tell them, you know, this is an invasive species, we're not allowed Mm -hmm. to take care of this. Um, We do have to humanely put it down. And most people, I'd say like 98% of people understand that they understand that, you know, it's the laws, it's not necessarily our choice. um, And it's in the animal's best interest. But you get people who, and if you look on like some of our Yelp reviews, (laughs) there will be people who are like, all they do is snap necks and like all these things. And we're like, no, (laughs) that's not at all what we do. But if that, you know, you know, we will perform humane euthanasia if it's necessary. And by law, you know, if we try to break the law by doing something that we're not allowed to do, that then jeopardizes everything else that we're doing. So then we can't help all of those animals. Um, Have, I, I have no love
1: of the European starling, so I'm fine on. That. <laughs> yeah, uh,
2: starlings, house sparrows, pigeons, all of all of those guys. So, <laughs> um, but we have a a couple. Most of it is really just like people not understanding, you know, what to do with an animal. Um, you know, we've had people who. Oh my gosh, we had a barred owl come in um, from West Virginia and a woman oh, really? called us. Yeah. Oh, so we take birds from across state lines. We can't take mammals or, or reptiles, but yeah. we are allowed to take birds. And we're only 15 minutes from like the West Virginia panhandle. So, so we're, we're pretty Okay.
1: I, I'm currently living in Elkins, West Virginia. So oh. not on the panhandle, but okay. um, Yeah. And, yeah. and I actually just recently did an episode on bar now. So I'm very interested in the story.
2: Oh, gosh. Well, it's not going to I don't think you're going to like it. Um, oh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, so basically, this woman called, she said she had a bar, uh, an owl that she thinks have has some injuries. And, you know, she's been trying to rehabilitate it and she's been she's had it for a week. And she really doesn't, you know, know why it's not working. She does this all the time, and we're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, well, if it works all the time, why are you calling us?" Um, and she's like, "He's just not doing well, and I'd like to bring him out to you." And we said, "Okay, that's that sounds appropriate." Um, also, number one, just uh, an FYI for people who are thinking about doing this at home, you have to have federal permits in order to have and contain uh, federally protected birds, which is pretty much all birds except for European starlings, house sparrows, and pigeons. Right. So the fact that this woman just had these birds and like admitted to having birds previously, we're like, well, number one, that's that's illegal. You can't be yeah. doing that. Um, so yes, please bring us your bird because you shouldn't have this bird. So she brings us this barred owl. And it's, it's very sad. You know, he had multiple fractures of both legs oh, and no. that she had just, she had had for a week or at least a week, yeah. um, you know, no pain medication, no antibiotics. Um, you know, I think she was like hand feeding him raw chicken, just all kinds of mm. just bad things that you shouldn't be doing. And we did end up, we had to euthanize that out because it had been too long. We couldn't yeah. fix those injuries, but the fact that there's, there's a lot of people out there that are just kind of like, oh, well, you know, I've done this before, or, you know, my aunt Susie raised a bird once, and I can do this. Um, You know, I've I've heard
1: all kinds of stories out there, Uh people with people raising possums, all kinds of stuff.
2: Oh my gosh, yeah. So, and a lot of it, like, I get it, it's from good intentions, and I understand that, but people don't realize that you know, their good intentions are what's actually killing this bird and what's preventing the bird from being released. Um, we've had people who called, uh, (laughs) we had a guy who called and was like, I found this baby bird and I read on the internet that I shouldn't feed it anything. And like in our heads, we're like, yes, amazing. Exactly what you should be doing. And then within the same breath, he was like, but I decided to feed it some milk and Captain Crunch. And we were oh like why? Why like <laughs> well, you he's were a baby. <laughs> on. Yeah, you were so close to getting it. Like you were almost there. Um so again, <laughs> FII, please do not feed baby birds. Number especially do not feed them milk. We've had um, people who were like, yeah, I had some breast milk left over, and we just decided to give them that with some, you know, syringes. And we're like, why, where are you (laughs) seeing birds drinking milk of any kind? Like, please stop. Um, so we get, (laughs) we get a couple of those. Um, we had a woman who was just absolutely like off her rocker. She saw a red-tailed hawk on the side of the road. She called us And it was probably about 35, 40 minutes away from us. Um, And normally we always ask that people try to call either if they can contain the animal themselves and bring it to us. That's faster than waiting for us to get there. Or they can call animal control. So we advised her to call animal control. Cause it, at that time, animal control in that area, they knew who we were. They knew where they could bring this bird, but mm-hmm. she absolutely refused. She was like, I thought I was calling, you know, this professional organization and animal control doesn't know anything about owl or hawks. And <laughs> Aren't I thought you get a helicopter
1: in. <laughs> yeah. They
2: were like, I thought you, she was like, I thought you cared. And I like, I'm getting kind of frustrated on the phone and my staff member, Heather sees that I'm doing that. And she kind of mouths to me and she's like, what's going on. And I like wrote down on a piece of paper while this woman is like berating me like, oh, there's a hawk here. And she said, okay, I'll go get it. So I kind of changed my tune. I was like, all right, you know what? We have a staff member. She's on our way. Can you stay with the bird? And she said, oh, well, I have a lot of chores to do. I don't know if I can stay there. And I was like, well, we can't just send somebody out to go on the, you know, a wild hawk chase, a wild hawk chase yeah, Yeah, uh, to look for this bird. If you stay there, like we need to make sure because even if it's been hit, like birds run, birds, you know, go all over the place. Right. Um, we just need to make sure somebody has eyes on it. And finally, like she was very huffy about it. She was like, yes, okay, I'll do this. Um, sh- uh, Heather goes out, she gets there. And I'm kind of waiting back at the center. I'm like, Oh, gosh, this should be fun. Like, she should have a really interesting time. And before Heather even gets back, she goes out, she gets the hawk, she's on her way back. The woman calls back again and she said, I just wanna know, Um, the woman that I talked to, she said, I couldn't come see the bird. We said, no, you know, we're not open to the public. Um, because number one, that's part of our permit conditions. We cannot have the public come in. These are wild animals. They're very stressed being around human contact. Mm -hmm. So like we wouldn't bring people. And she said, well, I don't know how, you know, I stopped and rescued this bird. And I don't know why you would think anybody would want to try and help a bird if you're not going to reward them somehow. And I was just (laughs) like, lady, like what is going on? Like, you do not get a cookie for doing the bare minimum of, you know, helping an animal get, get in charge. I was like, people drive hours to bring us animals. Like, no, I'm not going to reward you for calling us and being like, Oh, and she just got really snippy about it. I ended up like losing her on the phone and she got, uh, Heather got back. We looked at the Hawk. We ended up having to euthanize because he had, um, a traumatic eye injury that would not allow him to see. So obviously okay. not releasable. And she called back and like would not listen to me when I told her what injuries this bird had. And we ended up losing her cause we had really bad service. We were in a, a cottage at the time. And, um, She called back and I was on the other line and our vet picked up. So Dr. Jen Riley, who you'll be talking to later, she picked up and was trying to tell this woman that no, Jessica's on the other line. And the woman was like, no, she's on the line with me. And I had actually taken another phone call and she just wouldn't listen to her. And she was like, and Jen Riley finally was like, Oh, well, this is the vet. So, and the woman completely changed her tune. She was like, Oh my gosh, thank you for everything that you do. And this is amazing. And just like, completely different person just thinking that she was talking to like a medical professional after that and I was like oh my god this this woman so we we definitely have some fun people for the most part I would say 99% of the people that we deal with are are awesome you know they, they are willing to go out and catch animals they're willing to transport them for us Um, You know, even in cases where we they can't transport, we do have volunteer transporters who are occasionally available to help transport out. So Mm -hmm. most of the time, it's very few and far between that we have like a story to tell about people, thankfully, but those people are definitely out there. and that's unfortunate. So.
1: Well, it's incredible how you're not only a rehabilitation program manager, you're like a therapist, like a hostage negotiator.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's funny because I, I was a shy kid growing up and I didn't like that. Primarily why I sort of went the animal route. I didn't really want to be around yeah. people. I didn't want to deal with people. And now I find myself like i enjoy talking to people on the phone because i i enjoy trying to like make them feel better about the animal explaining what's going to go on um and most people are, are are very um thankful that there's even somewhere that they can take an animal um because in a lot of states the closest place is going to be hours away some states don't have rehabilitators at all like uh west virginia only has bird rehabilitators. Um, there's nothing else in West Virginia, um, for being wild and wonderful, but you know, for the most part, those people are kind of, that's the only way that we have our job is people taking the time and going out of their way to help an animal in need that's injured, that's sick or orphaned. You know, we wouldn't have our jobs if people didn't care enough to want to get those animals help. So
1: Wow, that's great. And I'm just talking out my tail feathers here. But um, I, <laughs> I I imagine working with animals kind of can't kind of build your people skills because when you're working with an animal, you can't talk with it. It's mm-hmm. like all about body language and patience and Mm -hmm. so then once you can talk to someone it's it's almost easy at that point
2: yeah exactly i can physically tell you what is happening versus oh does that animal look like he's in pain you know uncomfortable you know things like that so yeah very different trying to to deal with animals versus people so
1: those stories are amazing thank you so much for sharing them um just a, a question um uh, what do you guys do with um, the animals that are um, humanely euthanized? Because um, is there any way that they're kind of returned to uh, nature to kind of keep going in the circle of life?
2: No. So anytime we have to humanely euthanize an animal, we use a drug called euthazol or, you know, something uh, similar. Yeah. So if, yeah. if we were to put them back out and then an animal would, consume that it would poison them so uh it's also we're not allowed by state law so virginia has a lot of regulations around rehab so we're the only things that we can do for animals that have either died or we euthanized we can either dig like a nine foot hole nine foot deep hole and then bury everything or we can cremate them and we actually have a um, a working relationship with our local ASPCA, uh, and, you know, we can actually get those animals cremated, uh, through the same way that people get their pets cremated and stuff like that. So um, that kind of makes that situation a lot easier for us.
1: And does SPCA take care of the uh, the ashes and stuff for you guys too, or do you yes. do anything? Okay, gotcha. Yeah,
2: they, they they take it. Once we drop those the bodies off, which is really mm-hmm. creepy to say now yeah. out loud. <laughs> um, once we drop those off, yeah, that's that's entirely on them. Um, you know, we can't really do a whole lot uh occasionally we do use um deceased animals for biofacts so we might um we have a lot of biofacts so when we do have in-person programs whenever that happens again um we have items because we don't allow people to touch our ambassador animals just because they can bite they can talon, they can freak out um but we do have you know items that they can touch like whole wings of an owl that they can look at and look at the feathers and look at the the combing on that, that first flight feather that allows them to fly silently. Yep. Um, they can look at the talons on a leg of a hawk of different types of birds that we have. Um, so we have a lot of touch things that we can use from animals who could not be rehabilitated or did not make it through their injuries, but they kind of go on to have that second life to continue to educate people as well
1: that's amazing yeah and um that's just (laughs) brings another thing with me with uh even if it's an animal that can't you know Necessarily be saved and has to be humanely euthanized, and it can still go on to mm-hmm. even in its pat- afterlife to educate people and to and to interest people. Because I know it was so important for me as a young kid. Um, I lived for a time in Savannah, Georgia, and there was a guy called Okey Finoki Joe, and huh. um, he would come <laughs> to the school with, uh, you know, like rescued snakes and um, mm-hmm. kind of you know dump a bag of snakes on the floor, and we would, I mean, and taught us, you know, don't kill snakes, and yeah. um, and. I feel like uh, you know it really taught me from an early age that when there's a you know snake, you don't have to kill it. You know, it, just let mm-hmm. it be. And um, I, I think opportunity, education, opportunities like that are just so important.
2: Yeah, yeah, we tried definitely to. We we have a snake. We have a, an eastern rat snake named Slim. You know, we've got turtles, <laughs> raptors, all kinds of things, possums. Um, we definitely try to highlight, you know, because there are people who think that even like vultures, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like vultures and they shoot them or they shoot red-tailed hawks because they think uh, that they're going to to get their chickens yeah. or, you know, take their their pets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it really makes a difference for people to see those animals up close and be like, oh my gosh, they now have this emotional connection. They know their story. Um, and it gets them kind of more interested to, now understand how they can coexist with those animals versus just blatantly killing them and, and not actually fixing whatever problem is happening. So,
1: right. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking, you have to please don't shoot birds. Um, and, uh, and unless, you know, it's, of course, legal, <laughs> legal hunting or something, yeah. but, mm-hmm. um, uh, And then another topic we were also talking about um, before we start recording when uh, uh, Jessica's cat nugget came walking across the screen um, is about cats and birds. And you guys have to deal with a lot of cat attacks. Can you kind of talk about that? And uh, I don't know, educate us on uh, how important it is to keep your cats inside or leashed.
2: Yeah, so I did try to like run a few numbers before we did this interview, um, but generally, on average about 15% of our intakes every year, um, it really doesn't deviate very far if you look each year, about 15% of our intakes are strictly from cat attacks. And these are confirmed cat attacks. These are attacks that somebody saw a cat ha- you know, doing or the cat brought them the animal Um, You know, and nine, I'd say probably 99% of that 15% are pet cats. These are not necessarily feral cats that we're talking about um, because most of the time it's the owners of these cats who are bringing us these animals. Mm. Um, And looking at just the numbers since 2016, it looks like we have nearly 1,300 animals that have come to us just from cat attacks alone. And again, that's only confirmed cat attacks. We get animals that are found you know, by random passersby, you know, they're found found by roads, but they have suspicious puncture wounds. They have subcutaneous emphysema. That's generally indicative of, of a cat attack. We see that a lot in cat attacks, but nobody physically saw a cat with the animal. So we can't, Confirm that it was a cat attack. We might put in the keywords, you know, suspected, but that does not count into the 15% of our, you know, 2,500 plus animals that we get every year. Um, so it is the biggest frustration with that is that it's one of the most preventable things that a person, an individual person can do. You know, there's uh, you know, only so many things that we can do in terms of like climate change, but on an individual basis. You know, that's a lot of holding companies accountable and stuff like that. But when it comes to cat attacks, you know, that's something that is your pet. You can take actions today yeah. to prevent that cat from killing things. And even crazier is that um, a new study came out of uh, South Africa, I think it was in June this year, that found that, on, that animals only or cats only brought back about 18% of their kills. So people who are like, oh, my cat only kills like one bird every, you know, week or so it's like eight, then that's only 18% of what you're seeing, you know, 82% outside of that are animals that your cat is killing and not bringing back to you. Maybe they're just playing around with, and then the animal dies later from its wounds and injuries. Um, so there's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of issues in terms of, uh, you know, regulating outdoor cats. And that's my thing is, you know, if you have an outdoor cat, Then that's something that you really need to kind of look at and be like, well, are you putting this cat outside because You're not enriching that cat enough indoors and that's why he wants to go out or can you train your cat to go on a leash and harness so that you know, you're not supervising that cat while he's outdoors to prevent those things from happening. Mm-hmm. Can you build a catio or just get an enclosed porch? Or if you have just a, a deck, um, which is what I have here, you know, can you let your cat out on a small deck where they can't access the ground, they can't access birds? Um, right. And I'm actually in the process of leash training nugget currently. So (laughs) I love cats. And, um, you know, a lot of people, for some reason, get this thing where if you are advocating for cats to be inside, people, for some reason, think that you hate cats. And if anything, it's the exact opposite. I care so much about cats that I don't want cats not only to decimate wildlife populations, but I don't want those cats to also be in danger from the outside world as well. So that's getting hit by cars, that's being poisoned, that's being shot by unfriendly neighbors or being attacked by other predators um or even just other feral cats that might be in the area that are unvaccinated you don't know what kind of diseases these animals have um and generally indoor cats live a much longer life than an outdoor cat does so it's right. not just about the wildlife it's also about the cats and it's also about people kind of looking at themselves and you know, asking myself, you know, am I providing an appropriate and safe life for this cat? Or did I just get a cat for occasional head scratches every couple of days and then I don't see that cat for, you know, any other time? Um, so we get a lot of a lot of cat attacks and we get a lot of people who are just, they bring us animals and they're like, oh, I just wish my cat wouldn't do this. And we're like, we have a way that could stop your cat from doing that. <laughs> you know, just keep them inside. Um, and we do every now and again have cats that catch things animals that come into the house and that, you know, we can't fault the cat for that. That is their yeah. instinct. You know, that's not the cat's fault. That's not the owner's fault. That just kind of is a, a happenstance of, you know, right. wildlife coming in. But for the most part, you know, 99.9% of our cat attack cases are completely preventable yeah. um, and, you know, kind of lead us down that educational route of, of trying to inform people, you know, you can take these steps, you can do these things and you can make a difference. So I, I kind of like cat, uh, you know, talking about outdoor cats, cause it's empowering for some people to know that that's in their hands to, to make that difference.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and like you said, you have a cat, um, I had a cat growing up, um, and we, we love cats. We love animals. Um, but kind of the way I talk to people about it is, you encounter a lot of people saying, oh, but they they just love being outside. They love mm-hmm. it so much. Like, I don't want to yeah. take that from them. I'm like, they're so happy outside. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, a serial killer is happy when they're out killing people. But it doesn't mean we should let them. Like Yes, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> like, you're in charge. You're the owner here, not the cat. Like, you should be mandating what that cat's doing. And if your cat's not happy and side then you should really look at what enrichment or lack thereof you're Mm -hmm. providing for that cat um yeah our cat is is fully inside she only goes outside every now and again and that's with me on our on our like little deck that we have um but she has no short uh shortcomings of enrichment inside she's got a, a cat tree she's got lots of toys she likes to play fetch with us um so she's got a whole lot going on and i think it's it's just a a mentality thing and it's it's almost like a generational thing i grew up with outside cats and yep. not by my choice that was you know my dad kind of made that decision mm-hmm. and our cats never lasted longer than maybe six or seven years they would just disappear and we'd never see them again and we never knew what happened to them so looking back you know it, it just kind of even solidified it even more for me that my cats would not go outside because I, I can't stand not knowing what's happening to them or, you know, them being in potential danger that I could prevent them from being in. So.
1: Right. And I just want to bring up real quick that declawing your cats is not the answer either. Oh no. <laughs> one, it's basically like cutting off part of their finger. And two, um, uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my parents, you know, they did declaw our cat, but I remember mm-hmm. watching my cat uh, it was outside one time, and it literally jumped up in the air and grabbed a bird, and it didn't need the claws. And you know, it's like Kelly, let it go. But, oh no! Uh, <laughs> so it's it's they still got those sharp teeth. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's not yeah. But I think we're on the same page here with the cats, and let's yeah. I think it is a generation thing. I think our uh, it's where people are starting to learn more. It's it's all about education. It really yes. Yeah.
2: For sure. You can't, you can't do better unless you know better. So that's kind of my, my main point to go to so
1: Yeah, which is why uh, you guys are so important uh, with educating people uh, that side of it, not just with the saving wildlife. Um, And so do you mind giving us some education? What, what should people do if they find an injured bird? What should people do if they find a baby bird that fell out of a nest?
2: So there's a lot, obviously, a lot of situational things that can kind of make or break, you know, what you should be doing. But in general, um, the biggest thing that I want to kind of harp on people is that if you touch a baby bird with your hands, mom is not going to abandon that bird, um, for the most part most birds do not have a great sense of smell. Um, And even if they do like for Turkey vultures and things like that, they don't care, you know, they put all of this time and effort and resources into making a nest and laying these eggs and hatching these babies. Um, And especially if you, if that bird was nesting in your yard, your whole yard smells like, Uh, (laughs) there's human scent all over the place. So even if that was a thing, We wouldn't be able to not get human scent. on. That I know, and
1: if, if, if you look at, um, I've, I've had this before where, you know, find a baby bird and you and you look at the bird nest and the bird has probably used your hair to help build its nest. Yes, so it, exactly. it knows your smell.
2: <laughs> so um, my biggest thing is, as long as a bird is warm, dark, you know, or warm, alert, bright and active, that's kind of what we're looking for. If you can't see any injuries, you know, it hasn't been in a cat's mouth. Um, and that's another thing. If a cat has any animal in its mouth, Even if you look at it and you're like, there are no injuries on this animal, that animal still needs to be seen by a rehabilitator or a wildlife vet. Um, When they let go of an animal, those wounds caused by their teeth, they're called the punctures. They just close Mm. up. So you won't often see, yes, exactly. You won't see bruising or bleeding right away and they may look fine, but they'll develop that bacteria grows underneath that skin and then they die shortly after. So absolutely. Even if it doesn't look like they're injured, call a rehab or call a wildlife vet, get them checked out. Um, So as long as a bird bright alert, active, no injuries, Um, You know, you can't see any other issues wrong with it. If you can see a nest and you can reach it, go ahead and put it back in the nest, no big deal. If you can't reach the nest um, and these are baby birds, so you're looking for naked birds or fuzzy birds, um you know birds that still have some fluff on them they don't have most of their body feathers and wing feathers in yet these birds still need to be in a nest Um, and you can make a makeshift nest out of a yogurt container a berry container any plastic container that you can poke holes in the bottom and literally duct tape to whatever structure that the original nest is in or even a nearby tree um you know as long as that bird is alert can call out to the parents and both parents are available, they will continue to take care of that baby. That's amazing. Um, I didn't know that.
1: That's that's yeah. really good to know.
2: Yeah. People are always like, I can't reach the nest. And I'm like, good news for you. You don't have to. <laughs> um, the biggest concern with that is is hatchlings. If they're just hatched. They're very new and it's still kind of cold out. We do start seeing baby birds in like April or May. Right. Um, the only issue with that is potentially, uh, you know, exposure overnight when the temperatures mm-hmm. drop, but as long as it's still warm out, they should be fine. And if you need to, you can always put a little, you know, warm water bottle out with them or just bring them in at night and put them back out in the daytime. Oh, okay. um, but for the most part, uh, you want to let the parents do their thing. You want to let them take care of those babies. They are always number one, 100%, the best thing for that animal. We right. cannot replicate anything like that. However, um, we also have, you know, we're here in case something does happen. So if you find a bird that's been in a cat's mouth, you find an animal that has a broken wing, it's dragging a wing, it's not using a leg, it's cold, it's lethargic, um, you know, it's not reactive to you, that bird needs help. And you're going to need to, find someone near you who is federally permitted to take care of that bird. Um, the other thing is fledglings. Oh my gosh, we get so many calls about fledglings every year. Mm-hmm. And the greatest thing about fledglings is that they are generally 99% of the time, perfectly fine on their own. They look like these miniature adults for the most part, they might not be able to fly and they naturally jump out of the nest when they're fledging before mm-hmm. they're able to fly. And we always get people calling, Oh, he can't fly. You know, he's all by himself. I don't see parents. That's <laughs> the point, you know, yep. the, the parents are not going to be around their baby all the time because that leads predators to them. And especially this time of their life, you know, they're jumping out before they can fly. They are supposed to spend some time on the ground because that's where they're starting to learn to forage. That's where they're learning about predators and how to hide from predators. And generally the parents are there just out of sight and watching. And if anybody has ever encountered mockingbirds, um, I'm sure they're aware that A lot of parents, uh, bird parents at least, will protect their babies pretty aggressively. You know, they're going to call, they're going to swing down and and swipe through you. Um, We had a a woman call because she had a red-shouldered hawk nest right outside her front door. And every time she walked out of it, the parents would come down and just kind of swiper across the head. Um, oh. So they, they ended up having to have, you know, the state come out and move them. But yeah. for the most part, you know, the parents are there, <laughs> they're going to defend their babies. And if you can let them do, you know, whatever they need to do, that's best. Um, again, for injured birds, we always tell people, especially we get calls of raptors, primarily in vultures who are on the sides of roads eating roadkill. And we get people when when they say, oh, I drove right past and the hawk didn't fly away. Well, if they're eating and, you know, they're used to cars driving by, it might not be enough to set them off, or they might have a full crop. Maybe they can't fly readily right now. Um, We always tell people to look for obvious signs of injury. So are they drooping one wing compared to the other? You're looking for symmetry. Um, You know, does one eye, is one eye open and one eye is closed? Are they... Uh, holding one leg up or not using a leg at all, Um, you're just trying to gauge, you know, what's going on with that bird before you even try to contain or or go after that bird at that point. Um, But if any of those things ring true and a bird can't fly away from you, then that's obviously going to be something that, um, you know, needs to be addressed. I always recommend if you think you have a bird in need, Before you even do anything, even if you listen to this podcast, even if you read all of our uh, Instagram or Facebook posts about, you know, what to do and what not to do, call your local rehabber because you never know what's going to happen. We've had sorry to to like rant on about other things but I had a woman earlier this summer call me who was convinced there was this injured bird in the parking lot at her work and he should not be in that parking lot so something was obviously wrong and I'm trying to talk to her because she makes it sound like it's this baby bird she's he's on the ground he's not flying and I'm like okay well it's fledgling season maybe it's a fledgling can you describe to me what he's doing and she's like well every time I walk up to him he flares his wings out and kind of like runs around, but doesn't really run away from me, so to speak. And I'm like, what? That sounds weird. And I can kind of hear, she's starting to get closer to this bird and I can hear in the background and I can hear the noise and I have a suspicion. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I know what that bird is. I was like, can you send me a video of this bird? And, you know, so I can see better what's going on. Cause I, I'm kind of getting mixed messages from what you're telling me. She sends me a video and lo and behold, it's a kill deer you know, in a a gravel parking lot. doing its, uh, oh my gosh, look at me, I'm broken. And yeah, uh, follow I, me. <laughs> and of course she doesn't know that. She's just seeing this bird who looks injured, which clearly they're good at. Um, And, you know, it's freaking out. And finally I'm I'm talking to her and I call her back. I'm like, it's a kill deer. There's a nest there. And like 30 seconds into me telling her that, she's like, oh my gosh, I see the eggs. They're right there. And she ended up putting cones around this corner of the parking lot. so people Oh, that's would great. Fit. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. So and I, she sent us uh, updates later of like the the adult with the little babies after they hatch. And I was like, amazing. So, you know, knowing that kind of natural history, even if we talk to people, every situation is different. If somebody told me there's a bird in a parking lot and it's drooping a wing, I would automatically think, you know, yes, injured bird, catch it, bring it to us. But every situation is different. And it's always best to call and talk to your, you know, your professionals yeah. that you have in your area, because they can fine tune, you know, our assessment and figure out exactly what's going on and whether that bird actually needs to, to be helped. I would have felt really bad if this woman had brought us a perfectly fine Find adult killdeer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, um, it
2: would have been stressful. So. And
1: yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, killdeer are known for, they'll, uh, the mothers will act like they're injured to kind of, uh, get predators to follow them and leave their eggs alone. And um, and so that's a really cool behavioral strategy they've developed. Uh, uh, and also, uh, Jessica, the hawk swooping down just kind of reminded me, um, uh i was taught by a guy in iceland um, because they have a lot of arctic terns there and Mm -hmm. the arctic terns are known for uh aggressively attacking people oh wow Um, and uh uh, they know over there that if you just if you hold a hat up or a stick or even just raise your hand the birds will swoop down at the highest point so they'll avoid your head so in the future someone (laughs) I don't know. You might be able to give them that advice. Yeah, but. that's
2: a good idea to try. And the thing is, is that the those hawks, they came back the next year and nested in the same, same place. Spot. And we were like, no, <laughs> stop it. Oh, gosh. But it, they did have to get, you know, federal permission and state permission to, they came out and removed the nest. I was like, you should just cut the limb down so that Honestly. they have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, clearly those, those, that couple was doing well enough that they were like, we'll be back. So, yeah. Ugh.
1: Um, well, uh, Jessica, I'll go ahead and wrap things up. This has been so much fun and I've, I've learned so much and I really hope all the listeners have too. Um, you, you have some great stories. Um, I just like you to, to let people know where they can find, uh, y'all's amazing social media posts. Um, and then, uh, uh, how they can kind of, uh. It, if uh, they can support you in any way, or um, just support their local um, lo- uh, rehabilitation centers, whether that's volunteering or spreading awareness.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, just to throw it out there, so pretty much every rehabilitation facility is going to be a nonprofit organization. Um, you know, we do not receive any state or federal funds for doing what we do, so we only are able to do uh, our, you know, our service through the generous support of people who donate to us, um, whether that's monetarily, whether it's through in-kind donations. um, You can also support us through uh, Amazon Smile, if you choose us as your charity of choice. Um, which is a great way to to just kind of add a little bit of money without you guys actually spending anything. Um, If you want to learn more about us and follow us on social media, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Blue Ridge Wildlife CTR. Uh, We have a website, blue ridge wildlife CTR.org, which can give you more information, especially if anybody's interested in volunteering or doing internships. We do all of that. Um, We're also on Instagram, blue ridge wildlife CTR and Twitter, uh, which we're slowly growing on there. um, My preferred social media of choice. Uh, But that's also going to be BR Wildlife CTR um, on Twitter as well. So you guys can find us um, on there, you know, follow us, uh, stay tuned. We have a lot of cool events that we do, especially if you guys are local. We do public releases. We do um, some private tours of our outdoor education area. We do generally an open house. I'm not sure what the pandemic is going to do for us this upcoming winter. Um, But we normally do an open house where you guys can come and see the inside of our hospital um, and kind of see more about what we do. Uh, But subscribing, especially to our Facebook or our Instagram, you guys will get notifications of any events. um, And I promise you, you will learn something new at least once a week um, that you might not have known before. So thanks for tuning in. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Thank you everyone for listening. And as always stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston, and our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slamers. Check them out wherever you get your music, and also check out our theme song music video on YouTube. A cover art is done by my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gma.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.